Yes, what we use here, Eugene, is um, a harmony of the Gospels by A.T. Robertson. So it lines up all the Gospels together so we can look at them in one view rather than try to keep flipping back and forth. But I'll let you know the verses we're looking at. We're going to start in the harmony. We're on page 152. We're looking at John chapter 11, beginning at around verse 55. And we're going to go into John chapter 12. Uh, this is John 11, verse 55 we're starting at. And this, is, this section now is section 7 in the outline, and it is the official presentation of the king to Israel. And it starts his journey into Jerusalem that ultimately culminates in his death, burial, and resurrection. And resurrection. The official presentation of the king covers paragraphs 128 to 138. I'm hoping we can get through maybe through paragraph 135 or so this evening. We'll see. That's a big chunk. But if we get that, we'll be moving along pretty good. If you look at John chapter 11, section 128a, we have Yeshua's arrival at Bethany. This is now Friday, one week before he will go to his death. It is the eighth day of the Hebrew month of Nisan. Passover celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan. It would correspond, depending on dating, those that believe in an A.D. 30 date. Some There are some that believe the death of Messiah occurred in A.D. 27. That would be an early date. Some believe that it would correspond to A.D. 33. And there are those that believe it corresponds to A.D. 30. Those are three different possibilities. We can't get into all of that uh, tonight. But if it is A.D. 30, right in the middle, that would be in around March. That would be March 31st. But we are one week before his death on Passover on Friday. Bethany is on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, which is east of the city of Jerusalem. It is a short distance from Jerusalem and a short distance from Bethpage. Bethpage is en route from Bethany to Jerusalem, and the next event we're going to look at uh, will occur at Bethpage. Nearby uh, is, is the city of Bethpage. Bethany is the city where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha had lived, and where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Previously, in fact, Yeshua rose him from the dead in Bethany. And at that time, this is going back now, John... Uh, that be John 11, is that not so earlier in, the, in John chapter 11? And looking back at, oh, I forget which section it is. But um, I can't remember. But, we, but you can go back and you can, and you can find that, um, that section. But previously he, had, he rose Lazarus from the dead. And the Jewish leadership, as a result of that, determined to kill him. Now this desire on the part of the leaders begins to filter down to the masses. Take note, first of all, verse 55. It says, Now the Passover of the Jewish people was at hand. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. In verse 57, we're told, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it that they might take him. 
So now the antagonism of Yeshua by the Jewish leaders is filtering down to the masses. They send out this message to the masses. If anyone knows where Yeshua is, you're to let us know. They don't want to arrest him or to take him by force publicly, but rather they want to do this privately. So they want information as to where he is so that they can take him privately. Now, um, we're told in verse 55, this is the Passover. This is the fourth Passover that is mentioned in Yeshua's public ministry. In light of the fact that it's the fourth Passover, this is the third year of his actual ministry. He was immersed about six months before the beginning of his public ministry, and that's why many believe his ministry lasted three and a half years, from the number of Passovers and from the immersion of Messiah by John some six months before. If you look at verse 1, it says, six days before the Passover, uh, Yeshua came to Bethany. So this is six days before uh, the, the Passover when Yeshua will die. In verse 9, when the people hear Yeshua is in Bethany, everyone wants to go out to see him. Verse 9, the common people, therefore, of the Jews, learned that he was there, that is, in Bethany. And they came out to see Yeshua. But not only Yeshua, it also says they wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests now take the lead. Notice in verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees are sort of joining forces. The chief priests, remember, are Sadducees. The Pharisees, of course, are from a different sect. Now, these two groups oftentimes were antagonistic to each other, but now their, their unified concern to destroy Yeshua brings them together. You remember how we said the priesthood was established. You had the high priest. Under the high priest, you had 24 chief priests. And the chief priests over, over, were overseers of the 24 courses that served in the temple. Remember when Zechariah was serving in the temple, he was from the course of Abijah. There, that was one of 24 courses. The courses were established by David when he was... Uh, beginning to contemplate the building of the temple. So he reorganized the Levites, broke them up into 24 courses, set up different families over those courses, and that continued to exist up until the first century, when the, afterwards the temple was destroyed. So now the chief priests are those priests that o were overseers of the 24 courses. And in the 24 courses were the remaining priest a priestly staff. Zechariah was of the course of Abijah, and he was given the opportunity to light the altar of incense. And that, of course, was early in the life of Messiah with regard to the announcement of the birth of his son, uh, John. But now the chief priests, these 24, and the Pharisees are coming together to uh, plot to destroy and to kill uh, Yeshua. But in verse 10, we're told the chief priests begin to take the lead. And they took counsel how they might put Lazarus to dead. Because he's the one that Yeshua had risen from the dead. So it wasn't enough that he died once, he's got to die again. You know, it's kind of interesting to think of, <clears throat> of it from that perspective. It's also interesting because the Sadducees, among the many tenets of their faith, did not believe in the resurrection. And so in one sense, 
uh, they want to respond to what had occurred. Yeshua, uh, Lazarus's resurrection was a unique resurrection. He was raised on the fourth day. Remember, he had told and he delayed in coming to Bethany in order to raise him from the dead because in accordance with rabbinic theology, an individual was not actually recognized as dead until the fourth day. So Yeshua wants to wait to the fourth day so there's no discrepancy over the fact that he had risen him from the dead. This was the first of the three signs of Jonah. Remember when Yeshua was rejected as Messiah back in Matthew 12, paragraph 61, that he said, no signs now are going to be given to the nation except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection. Because when he was swallowed up by the big fish, he some believe he didn't actually die in the fish. Others believe he really was. But his return from the fish, whether he actually died or in essence died, um, for all points and purposes he died, was the sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection as Jonah was resurrected, as it were, from the dead to serve the Lord and bring the message to the Ninevites in Assyria. So the first of these three signs was the raising of Lazarus. Thus, it's one of those signs given to the nation after they rejected Yeshua as Messiah. And as such, it becomes a messianic sign. The other two occasions will be Yeshua's own resurrection and then the resurrection of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. They were resurrections particularly as signs to the nation in light of their having rejected Yeshua as Messiah. So verse 57, the chief priests who are Sadducees are taking the lead and they are desirous not only of killing Yeshua but also of killing Messiah as well. And many among the common people, however, believed in him. Take note of verse 11. But the chief priests took counsel uh, how they might put him to death because that by reason of him, many of the Jewish people went away and believed on Yeshua. So while we have read a great deal of the rejection of Yeshua by the Jewish people, there are these vignettes, these statements that we find in the Good News accounts, the Gospels, in which we are told that there were many Jewish people who were believing in Yeshua at this time also. In section 128, we have what's oftentimes referred to as the triumphal entry. Notice this is on the 10th day of Nisan. If it was A.D. 30, it's April 2nd. Notice in Mark's account, it says, And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, unto Bethpage, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So they've moved from Bethany to Bethpage, en route to Jerusalem. And according to the Mosaic law, on the 10th of Nisan is when the Passover lambs were to be set aside for, from the rest of the flock so that between the 10th and the 14th, the 14th being Passover, they would be, those uh, lambs that were set aside from the flock would be examined to make sure that it was without spot or without blemish and thus could be qualified to be the Passover lamb. The, the significance of what's happening in the triumphal entry is not a reoffering of the messianic kingdom to the Jewish people. Yeshua never reoffers it. The offer of the kingdom was rejected in Matthew 12, paragraph 61, and it's never reoffered. Only judgment will come upon the nation. Individuals may be saved by virtue of 
personal faith and Yeshua may do miracles for them on the basis of their faith and personal need, but no longer were his miracles for the purpose of demonstrating he's the Messiah. And we've been studying that together. Now, as Yeshua walks into Jerusalem, he's not reoffering the kingdom. He's not coming to them as their king. He's coming to them as the Lamb of God who's about to take away the sin of the world. What he is doing is he's coming with like the lambs that would have been brought into the temple on the 10th of Nisan to be examined. He's offering himself as a Passover lamb to be examined to see if he truly is Messiah without spot, and without blemish. And thus what we're going to see, he's going to be examined four times. He'll be examined by the Pharisees. He'll be examined by the Sadducees. He'll be examined by the Herodians. And we'll see how the examinations unfold. But um, many of the common people are accepting him, him as Messiah. But the leaders are not. But many of the common people are. When Messiah does speak, he will speak about the coming judgment and the fall of Jerusalem. So now he's in Bethpage. Notice a minor miracle is made reference to in Mark's account. He tells the disciples as they come into Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, he sends two of his disciples. He says, go your way. This is Mark's account, chapter 11. Go your way into the village that is over against you, and straightway as you enter it, you will find a colt tied whereon no man had ever sat. Loose him and bring him. So the idea that this particular cult had not been prepared for one to ride upon is the one Yeshua says, you're to bring for me to ride on. And so it, the cult was not broken, as it were, to be one that would, one could ride upon, but rather Yeshua is going to be able to ride upon this donkey without ever having to go through the process of breaking it. In Matthew's account, verse 3 Yeshua tells him, now we're in Matthew 21, looking at verse 3. If anyone says anything unto you, this is about them taking this donkey. They are to say, the Lord has needs of them, and straightway he will send them. So if anyone asks what's going on, just say that the Lord has need of them, and they will allow you to take the uh, cult and to take this uh, donkey. In John's account, in chapter 12... John specifies that as he comes into Jerusalem, they begin to place on the streets palm branches. Look at verse 12 of John 12. On the morrow, a great multitude that had come to the feast of Passover, when they heard that Yeshua was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees and went forth to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. What's going on here is the people begin to do things that were done on the Feast of Tabernacles, but were never done on the Feast of Passover. In verse 13, for example, they say, Hosanna. The Hebrew word is Hoshana. In Greek, there's no Shasam. That's why you have Hosanna. But they're saying in Hebrew, Hoshana, save us now. And during the Feast of Tabernacles, not only would you have the palm branches, this is we celebrated Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, we brought in the lulav, the palm branches. They're taking palm branches, putting them on the streets for, for the donkey as he enters into the city upon which he's sitting. 
And then they begin to say these Hoshana prayers that are recited during the Feast of Tabernacles, not at the time of Passover. What's going on is the multitudes are making the same mistake Peter made at the Mount of the Transfiguration. You remember at the Mount of the Transfiguration in Matthew 17, when they saw Messiah transfigured in all his glory, Peter says, let us build booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because the Feast of Tabernacles is the festival that will be observed when the Messianic kingdom is established. When Peter sees Yeshua in all of his glory, he says the kingdom is dawning. Let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and says let's construct these booths. The multitudes that see Yeshua coming in riding on a donkey, they're saying the Messiah is here. He's going to establish the kingdom. Let us celebrate the Messianic festival of the Feast of Tabernacles. And thus they take out the palm branches. They recite the Hoshana prayers. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They recite Psalm 118 verse 26, which is, uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because the rabbis taught that that is what would be recited when the Messiah sets up the Messianic kingdom. And that's why they hail him as king of Israel. But they are mistaken as to the timing. He's not entering Jerusalem to establish the kingdom. They're mistaken. He's come in to enter the city of Jerusalem to offer himself as one of the Passover lambs on the Feast of Passover. And so in Matthew's account, verse 9, he sa- uh, we, we read, And the multitude that went before him and that followed him, they're surrounding him, they cried, Hoshana to the son of David. There's his messianic title again. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hoshana Rabbah. That's part of the prayers from the Feast of Tabernacles, Hoshana in the highest. We saw John's reference, but if you look at Luke's account, he says, blessed, Luke chapter 19, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And he adds that they said, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Almost like what the shepherds heard, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. And in Luke's account, Luke chapter 19, verse 38, we now find that um, they begin to say, blessed is the king. And so technical terms that welcome the Messiah in the establishment of the kingdom, they're beginning to utter. Not realizing the unpardonable sin will prohibit him from establishing, the has prohibited him from establishing the kingdom at this time. The lambs are being set aside. And Messiah now is being set aside to be examined. In Luke's account, some of the Pharisees, verse 39, for the multitude said unto Messiah, unto the Master, rebuke your disciples. Yeshua points out that if the disciples, those who follow me, do not cry out, then the very creation, the stones itself, will cry out, announcing me as king because I am king, even though I'm not establishing the kingdom at this time. Yeshua then pronounces judgment. If you look at verse 41, they're hailing him as king. The Messiah is coming. But in Luke's account, Yeshua's response is a response of judgment. He says, and when he drew nigh, he saw the city. He wept over it because of the judgment that would befall it. And he says, if you had known the things, even you, the things which belong unto peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. Here was a missed opportunity. Messiah would have brought about the kingdom had they acknowledged him as Messiah. But in light of the fact that they did not acknowledge him as Messiah, he tells them that 
the opportunity has been missed and what your eyes could have seen is going to be reserved for another generation. A generation that will receive me as Messiah and not a generation that will have rejected me as Matthew 12 points out. He says, for the days shall come upon you. Here's the judgment. When your enemies will cast up a bank about you, will surround you, keep you in on every side and will dash you to the ground and your children as well. They shall not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of my visitation, the time of Messiah's coming. Jerusalem will be destroyed. People will be killed. Children will be taken advantage of. In fact, one and a half million Jews will die in the AD, 70 AD destruction of the city of Jerusalem. The largest number of Jewish people slaughtered by any nation up until uh, Hitler in the 20th, uh, 20th century uh, during the Holocaust. Consider that from the time of 70 AD to 1932 through 1945, the Romans had killed more Jews than any other nation, more than during the time of the Crusades, more than any other uh, nation that had heaped uh, destructive uh, uh, attempts against the Jewish people. So he te- and by the way, the only other time this blessing statement is recorded to have been uttered upon any other individuals had to do during the period of the Maccabees when the Jewish people were fighting the Greco-Syrians. Once it was pronounced over Judah, Hamaccabee, and another time it's found, 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verse 7, and a second time it was pronounced over his brother Simon after Judah's death in 1 Maccabees chapter 13, verse 51. Both of those brothers had this pronounced upon them because of the victory they were able to provide for Israel against the Greco-Syrians during the time of the Maccabees, which has to do with the observance and celebration of Hanukkah. Other than that, this is the only other occasion where the people pronounce these blessings upon uh, a Jewish individual. Here it's because they accept Yeshua or, or think of him as Messiah, even though he's now come as the Lamb of God and not the one to establish uh, the nation or the Messianic kingdom. He utters these words of judgment, indicating that judgment will fall. In Matthew's account, chapter 21, verse 10, it says, And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. This word here in the Greek means to be shaken as if by an earthquake. So his presence is bringing about great consternation in the city. The multitudes begin to say, This is the prophet Yeshua from Nazareth of Galilee. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But notice in verse 15, when the leaders see all this happening, when the chief priests and the scribes, there's the 24 chief priests, Sadducees, scribes, were uh, legal scholars, they were experts in the law, Pharisees. When they saw all of these wonderful things that he did, and the children that were saying in the temple, Hoshana, save us now, son of David, they, rather than moved with a sense of joy and hope, they are moved with indignation. They want uh, to kill him. Yeshua will not quiet the multitudes, by, uh, but rather he permits the claims that are being made about him because he accepts those claims, even though he's not coming now to manifest himself as Israel's king. 
Note in verse 17 of Matthew's account. And he left them and went forth out of the city of Bethany and lodged there. Look at Mark's account, chapter 11. It says, And being now evening, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. Note what does not happen. No messianic kingdom is established. They lost out on an opportunity that was then presented. In paragraph 129, there are two sections to it. The first section has to do with the cursing of the fig tree. Now we're at the 11th of Nisan. We are now at Monday, as the harmony points out. We're looking at Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke chapter 19. In Mark's account, verse 13, it says, And seeing a fig tree far off, having leaves, he came, hoping that he might find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he answered and said unto them, No man eat fruit from this henceforth forever. And his disciples heard it. Notice in verse 13, the key phrase is, This was not the season for figs. If it was not the season for figs, why would Yeshua curse this tree? It wasn't supposed to have figs. So why would he curse it? In Israel, as the fig trees blossom, little buds begin to come out, which can be eaten. And then six weeks later, figs would appear. This is usually in mid-June. In fact, the fact that the fig tree had leaves meant that it ought to have had buds that can be eaten. But the fig tree did not have those buds. And thus, Yeshua curses them. It's not the season for figs, but the tree was already putting out the leaves. So this tree ought to have had the buds. That's what would have been expected. In other words, the fig tree was making a profession of something it did not have. It is a picture of Israel. Also, Israel had been fruitless. But it was making a profession, at least the Jewish leaders were making a profession, that their faith was true, genuine, and correct. But they did not have the fruit. They were, as Yeshua is going to say, they were like a whitewashed sepulchers. They looked good on the outside. They had the leaves but they were filled with dead men's bones in the inside. They did not have the fruit to go along with the profession. And as Yeshua curses the fig tree, it is to be symbolic or illustrative of the curse or the judgment that's now fallen on Israel as a nation because they made profession, as Jewish leaders did, but there was no fruit to back back it up. In Mark's account, it says, and when he cursed, he said, no man is to eat fruit from the henceforth forever. Some have said, you see, he's rejected Israel. If the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, he says no one is to eat fruit from it forever. And thus this curse or judgment is seen as forever and therefore the Jewish people are not the chosen people. Of course, this contradicts what Paul says in Romans 11. Has God forsaken his people whom he has foreknown? May it never be. The resolution is found in the Greek term. The Greek word here translated into English as forever means for an age, for an era, for a time. So for a time, Israel will prove to be fruitless, but not forever. There will come a time when all Israel will be saved, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11. Note also the demonstration of Yeshua's two natures. He's the God-man. 
In Matthew's account, in verse 18, it says, Now in the morning as he returned to the city, he hungered. There's a manifestation of the humanity of Messiah, his human nature. The fact that he could curse the tree and it withers up reveals his deity. And thus, in this event, we see something of the human divine natures of Messiah as the God-man. The second part in verse 29 deals with his possession of the temple. If you look at Matthew's account in uh, verse 12, And Yeshua entered into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple. Early in Yeshua's ministry, this is the second cleansing of the temple, early in his ministry, he cleansed the temple. That was during a Passover. It was during the third Passover. And there when he, uh, or the third recorded Passover, but there is when his ministry went public. Here, he does this for a second time. He does this to demonstrate his authority to cleanse, possess, safeguard the temple. And this time, according to Matthew verse 16, this time he does not let anyone pass through the temple compound. In other words, he takes control of it. If you look at, uh, I mean, Mark's account, he says that in Mark 11 verse 16, as he overthrows the, ta- the money changers, he casts them out that were selling things, the money uh, the table of the money changers. Remember, when you brought money to the temple in order to put into the uh, gifts for the temple treasury, you could not use tribute money. You couldn't use Roman coinage that had Caesar's image on it or any image. So you always had to change Roman coinage in a temple coinage. Uh, and that's what the money changers were doing. And they would sit in the outer court of the temple in the court of the Gentiles. They weren't inside the court of the women or the court of the men, but outside in the surrounding area of the court of the Gentiles. And notice it says, and those that sold doves, and he would not allow that any man should carry a vessel through the temple. So he took control of the temple compound and wouldn't let people pass through it. And thus he also overthrew the private business, which was the business of Annas, the high priest. In verse 18, um, the, the leaders are looking for an opportunity to arrest Yeshua apart from the people. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes, there they are again, the 24 and the, of, who are Sadducees and the Pharisees. They sought how they might destroy him, but they feared him for all the multitude was, a, was astonished at him. They wanted some opportunity to arrest him privately. Judas Iscariot is going to provide the Jewish leaders, these 24 uh, chief priests and the Pharisees who are uh, working together. They, he will provide them with that opportunity to arrest him privately. Notice that according to Mark's account, Mark 11, verse 17, it says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, it says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. And in Luke's account, verse 46 of chapter 19, My house shall be a house of prayer. Notice in all these instances, Yeshua claims that the temple is his house. Look at 
If you look at Matthew chapter 21, it says, And Yeshua entered, verse 12, entered into the temple of God. But now three times he says, It is my temple. So Yeshua here is claiming to be God. And he's claiming that the temple belongs to him. Of course, this is a throwback to the post-exilic prophet Haggai, who said, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple. And the interesting thing about the, the Haggai prophecy is that, remember, the temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians 600 years before Messiah. And it was a beautiful edifice. When the Jewish people were permitted to return from Babylonia by the Persians who defeated the Babylonians about 536, they were also given permission to begin to rebuild the temple, which they will start 536, complete 521. And thus it wasn't long in rebuilding because the temple that was built subsequent to Solomon under the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah and Zerubbabel was not as beautiful a temple as Solomon's temple. And so many people began to say, you call this a temple? What kind of a temple is this? It is nothing like we remember when Solomon, because some of the people endured the Babylonian captivity, returned to the land, and they remember what the temple was like in the time of Solomon, because they saw it destroyed. Now they see another temple rebuilt, and they say, this is not anything like Solomon's. But Haggai says, but Solomon's temple would never be as glorified as this temple, because in this temple, which you don't like, is the temple to which Messiah is going to come. And now Messiah comes to that temple the second time. He has taught in the temple many times. But now he comes and he makes that grand declaration, this is my house. And my house shall be called a house of prayer. In one sense, he's quoting the scripture, speaking about God's house. But in another sense, he's claiming the house belongs to him. And thus he takes control of it and doesn't allow people to pass through. Now in paragraph 130, we then have the invitation by the king. Notice in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks. By Greeks he means Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They were full-blown proselytes. The Greeks were told, John chapter 12 verse 20, they come to Philip. And they say, Philip, we would like to see Yeshua. Philip doesn't know what to do with this request for these Gentiles to see him. So he goes to Andrew. And he says to Andrew, these guys want to see Yeshua. What should we do? Well, Andrew doesn't know what to do. So the two of them go to Yeshua together. And they tell him there's some Greeks out here that want to see you. Yeshua responds. At the, at the, uh, when you initially read the passage, it's hard to understand how it is that he's answering the question of the Greeks. We'd like to see Yeshua. Can we see him? And rather than just say yes or no, he gives us a very long, drawn-out um, teaching. And he points out the teaching of his death and resurrection. He's pointing out this program that the Messiah is to die and to, and to resurrect. He's not here now to establish the kingdom. So he points out a couple of things with respect to his death and resurrection. Look at verse 23 and 24. He answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily I say unto you, Except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it abides by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The first thing he says is, By his death he will provide life. 
Second, th- second thing he says is verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Second point he makes is, by his death, he will judge the world. The third thing he says is found in verse 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Thirdly, he says, by his death, he will defeat Satan. So number one, by his death, he'll provide life. By his death, he'll bring judgment on the world, ultimately. By his death, the evil one will be judged. Now in verse 32, he says, And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. His fourth point is, only after his death will Gentiles really come unto him. After he's lifted up, then the Gentiles can come to me. Right now, the program of death, burial, and resurrection is a program connected specifically with the Jewish people. I've come to them to proclaim myself as Messiah. They've rejected me. So now I come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world for those who will believe by faith and those who will trust in me from among his people. And then judgment will be cast uh, in A.D. 70. But once I'm lifted up, it will not only be Jews to whom the good news goes. Remember, he sent his disciples and he said, do not go to the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritans. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then, after I'm lifted up, all nations will have opportunity to come to me. And so right now you can't. But after the death, the program of death, burial, and resurrection, then you can come to me. The invitation then to salvation focuses on individuals. No longer the nation, for they've rejected me, but individuals within the nation and individuals within the nations of the world. So when Jewish people say, if Yeshua is the Messiah, how come so few Jews believe in him? This is the reason why. Yeshua said that when he's lifted up, you're going to see many, many Gentiles coming to faith. And why are so few Jews coming to faith? Because right now only a remnant of Israel is coming to faith. Because Israel as a nation has rejected me. But when this temporary setting aside of Israel is complete, Romans chapter 11, when the fullness of the Gentiles is come in, then all Israel will be saved. Then God's plan and purposes will focus again back on Israel, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly, and all Israel will be saved. And the mechanisms and plans and purposes God has for Israel will kick in particularly and the nation as a whole will be saved. Right now we're not living in that moment. We're living in the moment of the Gentiles when the gospel is going out to the fork go into all the world and proclaim the good news. And we're finding people of all different eth- ethnic backgrounds. By the way, when it says go into all the world, the Greek word there is ethne. Go among all the ethnic groups. It's not, you know, go among, you know, the nations, the Russians, the Germans, the Chinese, the, uh, you know, whatever, Filipinos. It is go among all the ethnic groups of the world, you know, not just nations of the world. You know, there are ethnic groups that don't have nations per se. Uh, But we're to bring the good news to all peoples of all ethnic varieties and backgrounds. But then when the fullness of the ethne come in, then God's plans we're going to see will be focused upon his people in a unique way and two-thirds of the people will die through uh, judgment that will strike the world one-third will come out refined as silver is refined gold is refined and that one-third will constitute the entire nation of Israel 
who will all be believers. And they won't need anyone to teach them, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. As Zechariah says, ten men will grab the coat of him that is a Jew and say, let us go with you. For we have heard God is with you. Some wonderful things in store for Israel, but right now wonderful things in store for the nations of the world. And thus, uh, here at Beth Ariel, we're Jews and Gentiles that embrace Yeshua as Messiah. And we celebrate the Gentile entity of our body as much as the Jewish entity. Because this is the plan that God is doing right now. And he's making out of two Jews and Gentiles, one new entity, one new man. And we should not, we should be celebrating it. That's God's plan. And we have a part in it. Those of us who are Jewish as the faithful remnant, those of us who are Gentiles as God's delight in bringing the good news to the lost, whoever they might be. So praise God, we're, we're living in this era, and it's a great era uh, to live in. And then in verse 27, we have what's referred by the rabbis as a bat kol, uh, a, the, a voice of God, a, uh, a sort of a voice that is of God that speaks. And if you look at verse 27, uh, this is the third voice from heaven. Then came therefore a voice out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it. That is, Father, glorify thy name. And he says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The first time we hear the voice of, from heaven is at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Second time is at the man of the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And now here's the third time we hear the voice of God uh, that I have glorified you and I will glorify you uh, once again. So the voice of Yeshua, uh, of, here the voice signifies that you, Yeshua has been glorified and will be glorified yet again. In verse 35 and 36, as John, is, um, uh, as John does, he has as one of his uh, sub-themes, light and darkness. And so in verse 35 and 36... Uh, you read, Yeshua therefore said unto them, Yet a little while is the light among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness overtake you not. And of course, the light refers to uh, him and to, he's the light of the world, and to his truth. And the darkness refers to the, um, uh, that which opposes him, be it by the Jewish leadership, by the evil one, uh, or uh, in, any, in any context of that which is in opposition to Messiah. In verses 37 to 50, we have John's summary of Messiah's ministry. Look at verse 37 to 43. Uh, first of all, uh, in 37 to 50, he summarizes that ministry. Verse 37, but though he had done so many signs before, uh, before them, yet they believed not on him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Who has believed our report? You know, we oftentimes hear if people see signs and wonders, they'll believe. Well, not so. Here, there are many signs and wonders done among uh, God's people by the Messiah himself. And yet, Isaiah has to ask, does anyone believe? Who has believed this report? Who has seen the arm of the Lord revealed? Well, the answer that Isaiah is hearing is, not many. Not many. And then in verse, uh, as we go on in verse 43, we have this summary of Israel. Israel can be characterized, as Yeshua points out, by willful disobedience. Nevertheless, even of the rule, uh, because of their disobedience, but even though 
uh, they are struck with blindness. Who has received our report? Uh, nevertheless, there are among the Jewish people, even at this time, many are believing. Look at verse 42. Even among the rulers, many believed on him. So even while it's, a, it's not the majority, nevertheless, there are some, even among the Pharisees and Sadducees, that God's grace is penetrating and they, uh, they are believing. However, uh, as the text says, though many believed on him, they are not willing to confess it openly. They don't confess it openly, verse 43, because number one, they feared being ostracized by the Jewish leaders. And secondly, they preferred the glory of men rather than the glory of God. They wanted uh, the recognition and by people rather than simply the recognition uh, by God himself. And then in verse 42, 43, uh, as we just saw, some of them did come to faith but would not openly confess it. Verse 44 through 50 gives us a summary of Yeshua. And there are five things that are pointed out. Look at verse 44. The first thing is that Messiah came to testify of the Father. So in summary over Israel, he's saying Israel could be characterized by disobedience. The Messiah came, performed his miracles, they rejected him. And while Israel as a nation rejected him, there were some, even among, many, he says, among the leaders that did believe in him and many among the common people. But the nation as a whole, by virtue of its leaders, are now in a state of rejection, therefore in a state of disobedience. On the other hand, with regard to Messiah, verse 44, we're told that he came to testify of the Father. And Yeshua cried and said, He that believes on me believes not on me, but on him that sent me. So he came to testify of the Father that people would believe on him. And that the evidence that they believed on the Father is that they accepted his Son. The second thing that is pointed out is that he was sent by the Father. Notice in verse 45, and him that sent me. So Yeshua's authority is derived from God the Father. In verse 46, he tells us that he is the light. I am come a light into the world, that whoever believes on me may not abide in the darkness. There's that sub-theme of light and darkness. But Yeshua is saying, I've come as light so as to redeem us and bring us out of the world of darkness so that we don't have to live in light of the world's values. We don't have to live in light of the, the world's threats or attacks on us. We can live in light with God. In verse 47, he tells us that acceptance of him will result in salvation. I judge him not. I've come not to judge, but to save the world. So if you trust in me, you will experience salvation. And then in verse 48, rejection will result in judgment by the Father. But he that rejects me and receives not my saying has the one that will judge him. The word that I spoke, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I spoke not of myself, but the Father who sent me. So to reject his message will result in judgment by the Father. And thus in verse 46, again, we see the conflict of light and darkness. In, ver in paragraph 131, we're looking at Matthew 11, Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke 21. Yeshua, or we are provided with proof of his authority. This now is the 12th day of Nisan. This is on Tuesday. In Luke's account, verse 37, 
we're told that in every day he was teaching in the temple. Every day during this time. He's in the temple teaching. And every night he goes out to the Mount of Olives. In Mark's account, Mark 11, looking at verse 19, it says, And every evening he went forth out of the city. Yeshua went out from the city having taught regularly. We're told that, And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree that he had cursed withered from its roots. And so the fig tree withered in one day. He then goes on as he is asked, Rabbi, behold the fig tree that you cursed. And he talks about what was the mechanism by which this occurred. And so he says the fig tree withered in one day and this was the result of faith. And he tells them that God will operate in response to their prayers provided that there are two things that are present. Look at verse 24. First, he says, All things whatsoever you pray and ask for, believe that you've received them and you will have them. He's not saying that we ought to just say, Well, I'm believing I've got it, so I have it. What he's saying is, We ought to be ones who trust in God to provide for our need. And if the need about which we are praying is one that God has desired for us to have, we will receive that. The key, though, is trust and reliance on Him. Not demanding or thinking that our faith necessitates God to respond in a way we would like Him necessarily to respond. God is sovereign. And He does things according to His will. But when He makes His will known to us and we trust in, his, in Him, then He will answer our prayer to provide for us what He has desired for us and determined for us to have. But there's a second component, and this is quite sometimes very alarming and something we should take very close, pay close attention to. He also says, and when, whensoever you stand praying, believing in faith, he says, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father which is heaven may forgive you your trespasses as well. If we expect our prayers to be answered, he says we have to be a forgiving people. And if God has forgiven us, we ought to be ready to forgive others. Sometimes the thing we need to forgive can be very hard to forgive. And sometimes time is necessary. But do not ignore Yeshua's statement here. That if we want our prayers not to be hindered, we need to be a forgiving people. And I think as we live longer with the Lord, as we live with the Lord longer, and as we get older... I think one finds that if you reflect on how much we offend God and yet He forgives us, I think it can become easier over time to be a forgiving person because you have more time to reflect on how forgiven we have been. When I was a young man, a teenager, 17, and invited the Lord to my life, I said, Lord, forgive me of my sin and accept me as your child. I had no idea of what an offense I was before God. Even though I, you know, was only 17 years old, you think, well, what can you do in 17 years? But the wages of sin is death. And we are not a holy people. We are not ones who seek after God, Paul says in Romans. We really do not realize the depth of our sin. I think it's only when you get a little older in life and you look back 
Uh, and maybe even that time when you're getting close to death, do you really come to more and more grips with, woe is me, a sinner. Lord, be merciful to me. And that's the idea here. We need to be forgiving if we expect God to answer uh, our prayers. In verse 23, this phrase, Whoever shall say unto the mountain, You be taken up, cast into the sea, and don't doubt in your heart, but shall believe what comes to pass, he shall have it. This, by the way, was a rabbinic expression that was used in the rabbinic writings to speak of being granted insight and ability to explain some of the most difficult ideas and uh, conveyed in Jewish law and Jewish logic. In other words, the phrase was used with regard to rabbinic interpretation of the scripture to solve problems and to understand God's word. So what Yeshua may be saying here is not, oh, if we say that mountain, it's going to get up and move. And if it doesn't, it's because we lack faith. What he's really saying here, if we ask God for insight with regard to his word concerning what it means to have faith and what it means to forgive so that our prayers might be answered, the Lord will give us insight and we will be able to say to this text, help me, Lord, to understand it. And it will be moved in such a way that we will come to grips with it and understand it. In other words, it isn't that, oh, we can say to the San Gabriels, move. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong with us. I guarantee you, there's nothing wrong with you, and those mountains aren't going to move. But if the meaning is, as the rabbis used it, to, say, to think of having our minds moved so as to understand God's word to solve difficulties of Scripture, now this passage may make sense to us. Because what were the leaders of his day failing to understand the scriptures that revealed Yeshua or revealed who the Messiah would be and aspects of the Messiah. And Yeshua himself said, you know, when you get a disciple, you make them twice a person of hell than you yourselves. Why? Because you're not teaching them the truths of God's word, but rather the truth of God's word is obscured through the rabbinic tradition. And we don't want to fall prey to that same dilemma. So we want to pray in faith, Lord, help me understand this passage. May this mountain of lack of clarity be moved out of my way that I would understand your word aright so I could trust you for who you really are and expect you to answer uh, the prayers I might have because they're prayers that are being offered in faith and in accordance with your will and because I have come to understand what forgiveness really is about and I'm able to forgive others. In Psalm, uh, Psalm, in section 132 to 135, we have the authority of the king is challenged. Another way of seeing this is the Lamb of God is going to be tested to see if he's without spot and without blemish so that he would qualify as the Passover Lamb. Now, before we look at it, Jack, if you have the time. Ten of. Okay. So we're going to try to move through this. I won't keep you too much longer. Is that okay? Psalm 1, uh, paragraph 132. We're looking at Matthew 11, excuse me, Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke chapter 20. Now remember, the Jewish leaders want to find a way to discredit Yeshua before the people. And they're not able to, because many of the people are following after him, and even many of the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves. And they also want to find a specific charge that they can come up with 
to punish Yeshua, to kill Yeshua. The specific charge can either be a charge that would see him in violation of Jewish law that would uh, permit the death penalty or a violation of Roman law which would necessitate the death penalty or both. So they want to find a specific charge. They want to find a way to discredit him in the eyes of the people because everyone's going after him and they're all following and they've just hailed him in a magnificent way as Messiah. So in paragraph 32, we have an attack against Yeshua by the priests and the elders. The chief priests and the scribes, notice in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and thus there came to him the chief priests and scribes. Look at Matthew 21, 23. To them came the chief priests and elders. Look at Luke chapter 20, verse 1 or 2. The scribes with the elders. The priests are Sadducees. The scribes are experts in the Mosaic law, and they are Pharisees. And in this section, section 132, the attack focuses on the question of authority. And so in Mark's account, verse 28... We have the question, by what authority do you do the things that you do? Who has given you this authority? In Jewish tradition, whenever one would teach on the scriptures, they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. So on the basis of their authority, or on the basis of their understanding, I have come to understand this passage to mean this. In other words, there's an authoritative base upon which to um, present your understanding and to have it and to expect it to be accepted or at least discussed. Also in accordance with the rabbis, you couldn't just get up and start doing religious things. You had to have the authority of the rabbis behind you. Whether it was your teaching wasn't supported by rabbi so-and-so or your um, acknowledgement as one who is conducting whatever ministry you're doing, it has been authorized by a rabbinic body. But Yeshua doesn't have it as such. Yeshua doesn't quote any rabbi. He never does. He simply states what the text is teaching. And in doing that, as he quotes scripture, he's claiming by virtue of not appealing to any rabbis, the right to interpret it for himself. And the reason why is because it's his word. He gave it. And so as such, he has the right to interpret it. But in verse 4, Yeshua doesn't respond in that way. He responds in a very Jewish way with a question. And so he says in uh, Luke's account, Luke 20 verse 4, the immersion, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? In other words, by what authority did John conduct his ministry? They're asking him, by what authority are you doing your ministry? He says, well, let me ask you a question. By what authority is, did John conduct his ministry? Now, the reason he raises that question is this. If the rabbis were to say, John is conducting his ministry by virtue of God. He's a prophet. And God has called him as a prophet. Well, then Yeshua would respond by saying, Well, John proclaimed, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He prophesied of me. So you could say, John has given me the authority to do what I say. And as you said, 
John's authority comes from heaven, so through the intermediary ministry of John's prophetic ministry, my authority comes from heaven. On the other hand, and then he would say, why don't you believe him and trust in me? On the other hand, if the people, if the scribes and Pharisees were to say, his ministry was not authorized by God, it was simply of the people. Well, then they would have feared being rejected by the people because the people recognized John was a prophet. Even if they're willing to say he was not, which they're not, those are their only alternatives. So they respond by saying Mark's account by um, verse uh, 32 uh, that uh, we don't know. Verse 33. And they said, we don't know. And so Yeshua says, well, in verse 33, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. And then in Matthew 21, uh, account beginning at verse 28 to 32, he gives three parables in light of their refusal to acknowledge what is true. So in the first parable is the parable covers verses 28 to 32. The first parable is the parable of the two sons. And the point he wants to make is sonship is demonstrated by obedience, not just physical descendancy. So the application of this thing is that the leaders will fail to get into God's kingdom because they say yes to God, but they do not do what God has told them to do. On the other hand, publicans and harlots and sinners will enter into the kingdom because they said no to God. We don't want anything to do with you. We're going to be tax collectors, take advantage of the people. We're going to be harlots and commit adultery. We're not going to be righteous. But then they realize the fallacy or of their ways and they repent. And thus they are allowed to enter in because they did manifest obedience to God. For they repented. Uh, John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is on hand. They responded to God's call for repentance. Whereas the scribes and Pharisees, the leadership is not. And thus he says, you will not enter the kingdom, even though you think you will, because uh, you are not obedient to the call to repentance. In Matthew's account, verses 33 to 46, he gives a second parable. And he talks of the parable of the householder. Now, the Jewish leaders once killed the prophets. In the past, the Jewish leaders were guilty for the deaths of the prophets. They, for example, arrested Jeremiah and uh, saw to it that he would, would be executed. They uh, executed Isaiah because they didn't like his prophesying. Yeshua himself will acknowledge this. Um, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, because... Uh, all of the blood from Abel to Zechariah, the entire righteous body, was the result of religious ideologues whose hearts were far from me. They were outwardly obedient or outwardly religious, but inwardly they were not truly conformed to the character of God. So he tells a parable. This parable is based on Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 to 7 about a vineyard that God planted that produced wild grapes, wild vines. And the imagery in Isaiah is God has planted Israel, but she did not grow up obediently and submissive to me, but rather as a wild olive tree that has gone 
haywire and is out of control. In this parable, there are four characters. Verse 33, here another parable. There was a man that was a householder. The householder is uh, equivalent to God the Father. He signifies God the Father. And this householder planted a vineyard. The vineyard, just like Isaiah's use of the same imagery, is a symbol of Israel. And he digged a wine press and he built a tower and he let it out to a husbandman. And then he went into another country. The husbandmen are the Jewish leaders to whom he has entrusted the nation of Israel. And when the season of the fruits drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen to receive the fruits. But the husbandmen took the servants and they beat one. They killed another. And then again in verse 36, he sent more servants. And they continue to mistreat the servants. These are the prophets that are sent to challenge the leaders to walk worthy of the calling they have to take care of the vineyard who is Israel. But they do not listen to the servants, the prophets. But rather they kill them and they mistreat them and they turn a deaf ear to them. Well, then the householder, God the Father, says, well, I'll send my son. Remember, it's a parable. Surely they will listen to him. Verse 37. But afterwards he sent unto them his son. Verse 37. The fourth character is the son who is the Messiah. But rather than listen to him, the epitome of all of God's revelation, they turn on him and they destroy him as well. The parable is meant to say that the Jewish leadership that has rejected God's spokespersons throughout history will reject, has rejected the spokesperson. And just as they've risen up against the prophets of old to kill them, they will rise up against the Messiah and kill him as well. Verse 16 of Luke's account. Well, what will the husbandman do? The householder do? What will God the Father do? Verse 16. He will come and destroy these husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And when they heard it, they thought, God forbid that should be the case. Notice what he's saying is that the Jewish leaders will be judged and their opportunity to lead the nation will be ended and it will be entrusted to other leaders in Israel who will lead the people properly. Verse 16, the householder will judge the husbandmen and they will be cast out of the kingdom. Verse 17, he quotes Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. He says, the stone which the builders rejected will be elevated to be the chief cornerstone. And everyone that stumbles over the stone, everyone that stumbles over the Messiah, will be judged, broken to pieces. And in fact, it will fall upon them and utterly destroy them. Messiah will come and they will experience an utter judgment because of their mistreatment of him when he came this time. In verse 43, it says, therefore, of Matthew's account, verse 21, it says, therefore say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken away from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Many who believe in replacement theology, that the promises are taken from Israel, look to this verse. Because in it, it says, the kingdom will be taken from you, allegedly understood by replacement theology, Israel, and given to another nation, the church. But if you look down at verse 45, we begin to understand what he really means. He says, and when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. He's not saying that he's going to take the kingdom from Israel. 
But he's going to take the kingdom from the scribes and Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of this day. And he will give it to a generation of another era who will embrace him. So he's not saying he's going to take it from the Jews and give it to the church or give it to others. What he's saying is I'm going to take it from the current Jewish leadership of this day and give it to a Jewish leadership in the future generation that will embrace Messiah when, when he comes. And then the third parable is found in Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. It's the parable of a wedding. And he says, Yeshua answered, spoke again in parables. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king that made a marriage feast for his son, sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the marriage feast that they would come. In the first century, weddings were set up in the following way. A father would establish a wedding ceremony. And the wedding ceremony would be a seven-day wedding feast. It would be an event that would last all week. Invitations would be sent out. And then when the feast was to occur, servants would be sent to have the guests come. So invitations are sent out ahead. And then servants would come to tell the people, we're going to have the uh, wedding feast today, tomorrow. So make your way over here and, and come on. The imagery here is that a king is preparing a wedding feast. And he sent out the invitations. And now he sends out the servants to inform those that are invited. But as he sends out the servants to those invited, those invited keep making excuses. We can't come because I've got to do this or I've got to do that. In short, verse 5, they made light of the invitation. Verse 5. So in verse 7 it says that those invited did not come. And he goes on to say, look at this. What would the king do? That those that were given invitations and invited but don't come. The imagery is that of Israel, of this generation. Invitations were given. The prophets of old told them the Messiah would come. And now servants are sent out. The servants like in John, like the disciples, Yeshua himself. And they're saying the kingdom is at hand. But they reject him. And so in verse 7 it says, but the king was wroth. God the Father will be extremely angry. And he sent his armies and destroyed the murderers and burned their city. So he's looking forward to the judgment that Yeshua said would come on this generation, Matthew 12. The A.D. destruction of the city and the deaths of many inhabitants of that city at that time. The judgment to come is the A.D. 70 A.D. judgment on Jerusalem. And so, those invited did not come. So what does he do? Verse 10. He sends out the servants. Just go into the highways and byways. Invite those in the byways, locals. Invite those in the highways, more distant. Those that he says to invite in the byways, local, are the Jews. Those he says to invite in the highways, more distant, the Gentiles. Now the invitation goes out. To Jew and Gentile alike. The common Jews, not just the Jewish leaders. And the nations of the world. And in verse 8, they come. Why is it that the others did not come? Look at verse 8, nine, eight and 9. The wedding is ready, but they that were bidden were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? Because they did not honor the Son who offered the kingdom to them. So then you go out to those local. There will be some among Israel who will. 
be worthy, that will accept Messiah, and go among the highways, the Gentile nations, there'll be some out there that will be responding. Will be responding. And so the unworthy are those of this generation. The worthy are those of the generation that will receive him. In verse 11 and 12, we're told that somebody showed up without a, a wedding garment. Verse 12, friend, how did you get in here not having a wedding garment? In that day, it needs to be remembered, the host of the wedding feast provided the wedding garment. And so what happened here is somebody came for whom God did, or for whom the king did not provide the garment. And thus he can't get in. In other words, those that get in are those for whom God has provided the wedding garment. And so who are those that God has provided the wedding garment? Those that recognize Yeshua as Messiah. Can't get in the kingdom unless you have the garment that is provided for you by, by the king. This harkens back to what we're looking at in Romans chapter 9. Those whom he foreknew, he destined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those whom he made the garments for are the ones that will be enabled to enter into the wedding feast. Without the garment, you're cast out. Without the work, the redemptive work of Messiah in your behalf, there's no hope of entering into the wedding feast. And ultimately, that would mean the kingdom. So this is the first of four testings. We're going to call it here. The first of four inspections in which the Messiah is to show he's without spot or blemish. When they ask him, by what authority you're doing this? They wanted to find a blemish, that he didn't have the authority. But he does have the authority. We know he has it from John. He said, the Lamb of God. We know we have it from God the Father. This is my beloved Son. We know we have it from his own demonstration that he's the Messiah by the works that he had done in the fulfillment of Scripture. He has the authority. He chooses not to go down that road. Rather, he chooses to respond with a question. And he says, by what authority did John do this? They're not willing to answer. He doesn't answer. But he tells them the consequences for failing to answer the question. Because by ignoring the question, they're exhibiting their lack of faith. So with regard to authority, he's not found at fault. He's without spot or blemish. The next uh, issue is going to be in uh, section 133, paragraph 133. will have to do with allegiance. Is it right to pay tribute to Caesar? So now they want to trip him up in getting him to show support for Rome. Where is the Messiah's true allegiance? Is it with his people or is it with, is it with the uh, Romans? And then the last two questions are going to be questions of theology. The Sadducees are going to ask him about the resurrection. Does he have a right theology about resurrection? And the second question, the, th the fourth challenge or attack will be asked, and that's by the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. And then the fourth attack will be by the Pharisees who will ask him, what is the great commandment? And so another theological question to trick them up is, does he truly understand God's word and what the most important commandment is? And then he concludes this section by asking them a question. And he asks them, who is the Messiah's son? And they will say, David's. And then he will say, how is it that David, Psalm 110 verse 1, can speak of his son and call him his Lord? 
How is the son of a king able to also be the king's lord? And so um, we'll, we'll come to that as well. Okay? So that, and he answers them all properly and shows like the Passover lambs that are inspected four days. He has four tacks to show that he is without spot and blemish. They are without spot and blemish. He also shows himself to be without spot and blemish and therefore can be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Pretty neat, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing when we start looking at things from this perspective. I was hoping we'd get further along, so that means we probably won't get done until June. But I was hoping if we got further along, it would be more like April. Well, what are you going to do? Well, listen, let's pray, and then you're free to go. And if any of you have any questions, I'm willing to stick around for a little bit to respond to them. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness, your mercy and grace that are new every morning. We thank you for Messiah. It is simply wonderful to read of his life in the fashion in which we are because the pieces fit together. Scripture is more correctly understood and thus our lives are more deeply enriched. Help us, Father, to live in light of these truths. May we not walk in darkness, but may we walk in the light of life who is the light of the world. Be with each and everyone who's come this evening. Give them a safe trip home, I pray in Yeshua's name.